0: This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 229, and we are recording on April 28th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Hi. Hello. That's it. That's all I've got. Just hi. Yeah. (laughs) Here we are. We are here, and we are doing the thing. The thing is being done. We're just going to go. Like, I have no banter. I, I, I have none. I have no banter. I'm we're just going to go. Okay, so how the show works. Some people out there are probably like, thank God. I'm so tired. <laughs> <And> I'm tired. <laughs> so how the show works. As I said, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations. So you can send us any and all of your reading recommendation requests. If you need something to read in quarantine or you need something for your book club um, or, you know, a gift for someone or whatever, you can send those to us. Our email is getbooktobookriot.com, or you can drop them in the form. Uh, which is at the bottom of the show notes on the site. If you are asking us for something that's time-sensitive, like you you know, need a gift for someone's birthday, which is a day that exists and is time-sensitive, then please put that in the subject line if you use the email. If you're using the form in the show notes, then please put it in big letters in the first line of, of your request so we can get to it on time. We might email you back if we're not going to answer your question on time or if we have already answered it on the air. Okay, we do have one piece of pe- – well, two pieces of feedback – From Terry, who says, for Roxanne, who's volunteering at the ranger station for the summer, uh, Terry recommends The uh, Two Old Women by Velma Wallace, which we have talked about on the show and I think would be great. It's about, you know, two old women, obviously, who are abandoned by their tribe in Alaska and are left to survive for themselves in the um, Alaskan wilderness. It's assumed that they're going to die, like the tribe leaves them to die, but they don't. They kick butt and are amazing. Um, And then Terry also recommends for Anonymous, who is looking for book recommendations um, with books that feature a blind or deaf character, a book that I I loved is The Blind Contessa's New Machine by Carrie Wallace, which I would agree is a terrible title, but is a wonderful, beautiful book. So there you go. Thank you, Terry. Okay, Jen's going to tell us about our first question, and then we will have our first sponsor and away we will go.
1: All right. Our first question is from Hillary, who says, I've recently been fascinated by both historical fiction and fantasy novels inspired by various East Asian cultures. I've always loved these genres, but growing up, my reading centered more around European inspired fantasy, usually Regency or or World War II historical fiction reads, all from very Western perspectives. I read memoirs of a geisha in high school and loved it, but my 15 year old self did not realize how problematic it was. So join the club. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah,
0: same. (laughs) Me too. All right. Let's see.
1: Uh, In the fantasy genre, I've picked up a few more books recently. Would love to find more, even if they are backlist. I would also love to be able to support Own Voices authors, as I know there has been harassment, particularly in the U.S., towards some members of these communities. Uh, Historical fiction I've recently read or picked up already. Pachinko, The Library of Legends, The Night Tiger, The Lotus Palace... And fantasy, I've read or already picked up The Poppy War, Girls of Paper and Fire, Forest of a Thousand Lanterns, Flames in the Mist, and Spin the Dawn. Okay, let us do our sponsor.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, Don't let the white man take the house, end quote. today's episode is brought to you by bloom books And now let us talk about East
1: Asian historical fiction and fantasy. I'm just going to keep talking. I would like to introduce you to the amazing Ken Liu. He's Mm. fantastic Mm -hmm. and also coined the turn of phrase Silk Punk, which is like fantasy, sci-fi, inspired by East Asia specifically. So if you do like a silk punk search online, you're going to find a lot more. And his, he's written like a ton of different kinds of things, including a lot of like contemporary or sci-fi short stories. But he also has an epic historical fantasy series called The Dandelion Dynasty. The first book is The Grace of Kings. And this is like a 100% in your wheelhouse because it is sort of that same kind of, you know, pre-industrial, down to see Epic, but it's all inspired by East Asian cultures. I believe there's a lot of specifically chinese uh influences i'm i think um and it's just so interesting it's uh there're two main characters one is a bandit named kunigaru and there's also a like you know warrior who's the son of a deposed royal like i think he's a duke um and so you know it has has been lost their—the t- family has lost their title, but, you know, he's been raised in this tradition of pride in their lineage, and his name is Mara Zindu. And there is, of course, an emperor, and there's an uprising against the emperor, and these two sort of join forces and become really close friends and then have all of these adventures together that include, like, airships and assassins and, you know, like— underwater whale machine (laughs) things. (laughs) And all just kinds of, you know, like there's martial arts and there's court intrigue and there's romance and there's betrayal and just like a million billion things. And it is so engrossing. And it does feel sort of like, old school in the same way that when you look at the reading style of like Lord of the Rings, for example, like it's that golden age style storytelling, but Mm. by a modern author with modern sensibilities, which is a fascinating combination. So I really think you'll love it. I think that the first, are they all out? I should have checked this before I started talking. The third one is not out yet, but the first two are. So again, that's The Grace of Kings, which is the first in the Dandelion Dynasty series by Ken Liu.
0: Okay, I went with the historical fiction portion of this question. And I picked How We Disappeared by Jin Jing Li, which does come with a trigger warning for rape. And it is World War II, but it's the Pacific Theater, which is, you know, as you mentioned in your question, like, very rarely do- discussed. We get a million World War II novels every year, and they're almost all about Germany. Whatever. Anyway, <laughs> um, so I picked this up because I had never, I had not heard anything about this book when it came out in 2019. And then it got long listed for the Women's Prize. And I read the long list every year. So I picked it up earlier this year and it's just oh right in the fields. um so you're you get two storylines here the first one is about uh wang di it's a, it takes place in singapore in 1942 as the japanese are invading and then also in modern times so it opens in modern times with wang di who is an elderly woman who has been married for 50 years and her husband has just passed away and you realize as she is going through their belongings and she has to like move house from one apartment to another um, as her husband has just died that When he was on his deathbed, they both had, like, lots of secrets from their experience living during the war as the Japanese invaded Singapore and the things that they had to do to survive and the, the, like, things that they suffered, that they, like, never talked about with each other. And on his deathbed, he asks her, like, you can tell me these things about your life, and she won't do it. She won't do it. And so she is, like, reminiscing on the things that happened to her during the war, which was that her village was ransacked by the Japanese, and she was taken, along with several other girls, to be a what they called a comfort woman. I'm sure you've heard this term before, uh, which was just – she was put into sexual slavery to serve the Japanese troops who were living in Singapore. And then when she was released from that, when the war ended – the, the way that those women were treated in Singapore and around Asia after the war was over was abysmal. They were accused of, like, prostituting themselves on purpose to gain favor from the Japanese and were, you know, considered unclean and it was really hard for them to get married, all of these really awful things that they had to undergo. And so she never talked about that with her husband. And so she's thinking about about that. And then the second storyline is about a little 12-year-old boy named Kevin, who lives in Singapore, uh, also lives in Singapore. And his grandmother, who lives with him and his family, is also dying. And she confesses to him something on her deathbed uh, while she's like kind of out of it. Like she's got pneumonia and she's, you know, on a bunch of painkillers and she doesn't really know what she's saying. But she confesses something to him, to this little 12-year-old boy, that really changes his outlook on his family and sends him down this rabbit hole of investigating the history of the war and his family's participation in it. And then those two storylines come together in a way that is, that you can kind of see coming a little bit, but actually is surprising. It's like a, like a twist. A mini twist. I guess that's like how I would put it, like a little <laughs> mini twist. Um, so I love this book a lot. Wong Di is an amazing character. And the way that she handles her trauma is just like, oh, yes, like rooting for her the whole time. Um, and Kevin is such a great little boy. And he's, he's bullied a little bit in the book and the way that he manages it and like manages his family's foibles and his father's depression and like, this big secret that he uncovers just he reminds me of harriet the spy a little bit like he just like knows this stuff about his neighbors and about his parents and he just goes off into the neighborhood to find out uh, what he needs to find out a lot of times by like eavesdropping on adults having conversations when they think he can't hear anyway it's great so that's how he disappeared by jing jing lee all right question two um what's my favorite question it's from abby and it is just looking for a good funny relaxing book that is over 400 pages and will give me wonder wanderlust end of question Jen, what do you have?
1: <laughs> this I found this really hard. Like it was. <laughs> it's so funny because you would think that these like very open questions would be easier, but actually you're just like, God, which of like eight thousand books do I pick? Mm-hmm. And also the funny part I think is hard. Like I don't know why, but most of the four hundred plus page books I have read are very dramatic yes. and angsty. So that was that was tricky, but. I settled on the Lunar Chronicles series. The first book is Cinder. And this is a YA series that is, like, set in a future... There is space travel, so you can have like a little interstellar wanderlust. But also, the first book, uh, Cinder, takes place in a future Beijing. The second one takes place in a future France. I think is it the third one that's on a satellite. Like they they go all over the place, and then the characters inside of those stories have all kinds of adventures as well. So like there is so much adventurous travel, and they are that kind of like YA that is you know the stakes are there and the feels are there, but it is all just sort of like, you know, I mean, these are obviously fairy tale retellings. So the first one, Cinder, Um, we have a cyborg Cinderella, which I just love that twist, for example. And, you know, there is like an evil queen. um, There's a prince there. And the way that Marissa Mayer is playing with these fairy tales is really fun and satisfying. Scarlet, which is the second book, which I think is my favorite of the series, has like, sort of bioengineered werewolves. It's like, you know, Little Red Riding Hood and the Big Bad Wolf, but in a completely new and exciting way. Um, and they're just so engrossing. They are, I believe, every single one of these books is over 400 pages, and they get longer as they go, which was both, like, good and bad, because I was just like, oh, my God, how am I ever going to get through all of this? But, I mean, you will get through it very quickly, because they are kind of popcorn-y in a very fun and satisfying way. So again, uh, that's the Lunar Chronicles. The first book is Cinder, and they are by, I never know if it's Marissa Mayer or Marissa Meyer, and I've looked it up 16,000 times (laughs) and completely cannot retain the information. So I apologize if I got that wrong.
0: we just call her M squared.
1: M squared, there you go. That's
0: what we're going to do. Okay, I also really struggled with this book, and I picked this question because I thought it would be easy, and I wanted to give us, like covid brain break it turned out to be really hard because all the <laughs> books that are that long are like really epic and dramatic and not funny or relaxing so anyway i took this to the contributors and was like y'all i need some assistance with this question and tika one of our contributors who's amazing and has a brain like steel trap was like hello crazy rich Asians, which yes Crazy, Genius. rich, freaking Asians. Genius. So perfect. So that's by Kevin Kwan. Um, and it is 403 pages. So like I just snuck it in. Um, I also recommend the movie. It's so good. So it's about a, a woman named Rachel who lives in New York. She's an American-born Chinese and has this like amazing job at NYU. She's an economist, I think, professor, economics professor. And she's been dating a man named Nicholas Young for two years. And he is from Singapore. And she doesn't know much about his family, but he has invited her to come home with him to Singapore for like a family wedding. So she's excited to finally meet, you know, his family and see what his life is like, what his childhood was, was like and all that. And she knows that his family is like well off, but that's pretty much all. He's very secretive about it. Doesn't talk about it a lot. And then she gets there and realizes that like, they're not well off. They're actually like probably the most wealthy people on the island and maybe some of the most wealthy people in Asia, like levels of wealth that are hard for people who don't live that life to comprehend kind of money and her um his mother does not take to her (laughs) which is like an understatement his mother is not here for this like american poor girl who who has like a questionable past and a job Lay gasp you know like a job (laughs) that she works like with her with her brain during the day that she's still like go do oh my god like it's so scandalous And so she gets thrust into this world of very, very wealthy people, most of whom are not here for her to succeed and are not here for her and Nick's relationship to be successful uh there's also a a secondary character named astrid who is nick's cousin um who is an you know like the it girl of singapore um also of course very wealthy in all fashion magazines um like that kind of girl and she has married and has a son um her marriage is kind of falling apart so you follow that timeline also it's super super gossipy hilarious so many members of his family are there for like comedic relief and they serve that role so well, it's super fun. And of course, it's going to give you a lot of wanderlust, like unless you live in Singapore now, which you did not mention where you are. So I don't know, I took the risk here. But there's a specific scene where they go home that is recreated in the movie that I really liked, uh, where he takes her to an outdoor food market. And they just are and like describing the food that they're eating at all these food stalls. It's just like, I have to go there? To the other side of the planet to eat that noodle bowl that I could probably just make, but I'm not going to. What I'm gonna do is plan to fly to Singapore. It's so great. Uh, so that's Crazy Rich Asians, and it is a series. There are more that you can read, uh, by Kevin Kwan. All right, our next
1: question is from Magdalene, who says, I'm always trying to read more books in translation because I love learning about new cultures. I also started tracking the country of origin of my reads lately and didn't feel great about the fact that about eighty percent of the books I read come from either the US or Canada. I'm Canadian. So I've been making more of an effort, but I find most books in translation are super literary and dense, and that's not always what I'm looking for. I'm hoping for books in translation that are a bit easier to read. I'm not picky about country of origin, and my favorite genres are fantasy and contemporary fiction. I'm looking for something more Frederick Bachman or Cornelia Funk and less Haruki Murakami. That's like a very, that's very well Mm -hmm. specified for the record. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a very helpful spectrum of reference. What do you have, Amanda?
0: So I picked "Convenience Store Woman" by Sayaka Murata. It's translated by Ginny Tapley Takamori, and it, it does take place in Japan. And I picked this because of the Frederick Bachman um, name that you dropped. Like, obviously, it is in Japan and not, I think, Sweden, where Frederick Bachman's from. But Bachman writes about these like kind of outsider in society people, like generally grumpy <laughs> people who are trying to get along in life uh, with their outsideriness. And "Convenience Store Woman" is very much like that. It's about a woman named Keiko who is, has always been strange, considered strange. Um, She has a problem understanding emotional cues and social cues. Um, When she was a child, her reaction to being irritated or to um, being in a difficult situation was almost always violence and not in an emotional way, but in a like, you're bothering me, I'm going to kill you so that you stop bothering me, like logical kind of way. And she had to learn very early on as a kid that that was unacceptable. And so she has grown up not fitting in or even wanting to fit in necessarily like she doesn't understand the value other than learning how to mimic social cues and emotional cues and like facial expression so that she can fit in and like kind of ease her way in life and so when she's 18 she takes a job at a convenience store and it turns out that she loves it like it is exactly what she needed. she she gets a uniform so she doesn't have to make choices about what to wear and risk looking weird out in public she has enough coworkers that she can mimic their facial expressions and like pick up on how is and is not appropriate to respond to different situations it comes with a like a manual you know working in the convenience store comes with a manual that has helped her regiment her days and so this is like who she is she works at the convenience store and that is it she doesn't have any ro- romantic entanglement she does not really have friends um she has a sister who she is close to and that that's pretty much it and so in the book, she's been working there for 18 years. She's 36. And her family has kind of given up on asking her, like, when are you going to go get a, you know, quote unquote, real job? When are you going to get married? When are you going to have kids like that? But her, her, like, acquaintances out in the world still kind of give her crap for it. So she's starting to wonder, like, am I not doing this right anymore? Like, it has the, the things that the convenience store taught me they're no longer applicable because I'm older now. And now I need to start thinking of new ways to live. And then a new employee gets hired. This like really bitter, awful man gets hired at the convenience store and kind of upends her way of life. Uh, Like ends up living in her apartment somehow. It's all very strange. Um, And then she has to kind of reevaluate how she's living. Like, should she pretend that this is her boyfriend? Should she go ahead and kill him because he's annoying? You know, like maybe those things that she learned as a kid weren't useful and she can just get rid of him probably not. Let's not do that. And it's just like a really fascinating, you know, look at this one woman's life. And, you know, okay, so when I read it, I thought this woman is kind of a sociopath. Like she does not have emotional, she has no emotional affect. She doesn't understand. She doesn't have empathy or she reacts with violence. And then I saw more and more people be like, no, no, she's not. She's not a sociopath. She has autism. And I was like, I don't think that's, I don't know. Like, obviously I am unqualified to diagnose a fictional character with any kind of anything. But the fact that her, her knee-jerk reaction to a lot of situations is to be violent makes me feel like I was right and it's not autism because I don't think that's real. But so I don't know. But this is the thing that the book does to you is you're trying to figure out just because this woman does not want to do anything except exactly what she wants to do, something has to be wrong with her. Like I fell into that trap completely. Like there's, she's got to be you know crazy or she's got to have some kind of mental illness or like whatever like she can't just be a person who's existing not harming anyone doing what she wants and it's a a, a book of the book is completely a statement about how women in japanese culture feel so like stuck and forced to conform that they can't act in ways that they want to without somebody being like are you sure you're not ill which is exactly Mm -hmm. what i did right like i did i did that so it's a really really great and it's super short it's only 160 pages And totally worth it. So that's Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata, translated by Ginny Tapley Takamori.
1: I picked a book I'm reading right now, which is A Hero Born by Jin Young, translated by Anna Holmwood. And this is only recently available in America. But I first heard about it's the first book in the legend of the Condor Heroes series, which I first heard about from Sherry Thomas when we did a recommended interview with her. And this is like the classic adventure, epic, historical novel series of China. Like, it is, that is what it is. It is, like, everybody's read it. There are a thousand adaptations of it, apparently. Like, it's this whole huge cultural force. And again, only recently available in... America. I think there are maybe some British translations, but, like, this is a brand new translation. It's the only one in English in America published by, like, a major publisher that I am aware of. And it is so much fun. And I will say that I I love martial arts movies. I love wuxia, like, kung fu films. They're just, I'm just, like, I grew up on them. I love them. And this is basically, like, a really intense, historical, epic adventure with all of the martial arts forever just like pages and pages and pages of martial arts and I find that amazing and I do think this translation is really accessible but I'm saying that because I understand I don't understand why not but I do know that other people are like perhaps not as interested in that as I am but I will say that like first of all it's super fun like, they're doing all these amazing feats and it's like, you know, there's a drinking contest where one of the characters is like literally forcing the wine out of the bottom of the soles of his feet what? by like <laughs> using his like internal powers. Like, and that's how he's winning the drinking contest. Like, really wild, amazing, fun feats of, you know, mind over matter, etc. And then also talk about your cultural references. Like this takes place in the 1200s in China. Um, the Song Emperor is being invaded by northern neighbors. And, you know, half of the territory is under the control of one and half the territory is under the control of the other. And, you know, everybody's like all of the lower class are being oppressed by the military on either side. And there are these like roving heroes. Um, who are, you know, trying to figure out, like, where their allegiance lies, are they free agents, and then getting attacked by these various, you know, military people, and where do their loyalties lie, etc., And so the context is based on actual history of China and then, you know, turned into this adventure story. And it is just like there's so many directions you could go in learning more about the cultural underpinnings of this series. And there are it's there just like there's like poetry and there's references to actual historical figures. And and then there's the fun martial arts and like there's just so much going on. It's my bedtime book because I find it like incredibly soothing right before I'm going to sleep to read about like you know these wild feats of strength and and these really fascinating characters and I love the mannerisms in this book like it's also in a certain way and maybe this is just because I've been doing a lot of watching Austen adaptations but like obviously the mannerisms are not the same but some of these scenes are comedies of ma- manners in much the same way like they're fighting over who's going to be the most polite as they're also dueling each other it's fascinating it's so much fun Um, so again that's a hero born by jin yang translated by anna holmwood and it's the first in the legend of the condor heroes saga
0: all right question four is from carrie who says my 16 year old son is looking for books where magic exists in the everyday world and everyone knows about it so you might find an herbs and amulet shop next to a shoe shop and the library openly has magic books he would prefer little or no overt sex or romance as he has arrow, ace, and finds both uncomfortable. Okay, I went with the akata Witch by Nettie Okoro Okorofor, which might be a bit young for him. It's middle grade, but there's a serial killer in it. So I think that it's fine for an older <laughs> kid to read because it is kind of dark. Um, so it's about a 12-year-old girl named Sunny who is born in New York to Nigerian parents who then move her back to Nigeria. So she's born in New York, moves to Nigeria, and she's also albino and so she can't be out in the sun um, even though all she like really wants to do is play football with her friends all day Um, and it's hard for her to go through school without you know being bullied both for being albino and also for being an American um, with like who who has a you know a funny accent and all the things that kids make fun of other kids for Um, and so she makes a few friends um, Orlu and Chi Chi and then (laughs) realizes one day through a series of events that I won't get into that she actually is descended from like magical people and has magical abilities herself as do her two friends Um, and she gets plunged kind of into this world of they're called the leopard people. So these are the magical people who exist in this area of Nigeria. And they're like, there are covens, there are, like you mentioned, amulet shops that just kind of exist out there. Um, and magic is wo- woven into the fabric of these people's society. Um, and so they are trained, they're taken up by a, like a, not a professor, but it's kind of a professor, uh, these three kids to learn how to harness their skills and to use them in the most effective ways. They also have like um, football tournaments which i thought was a really nice touch uh, and then out like while all this is happening well she's discovering that not only is she like having to deal with the issues of being a 12 year old who's being bullied in school but she also has like secret magical abilities that she's not really supposed to tell anyone about uh, oh also there's like this other society that exists in nigeria where magic is just kind of a thing um and like they have their own monetary system and all these these like rules that she has to learn um there's also a serial killer called black hat who is kidnapping and uh, maiming children specifically. So it's not just a serial killer. It's a serial killer who is uh, coming out targeting children. And so she has to keep her identity a secret, learn all of these things she's supposed to learn from her teachers while also being kind of like a little bit on lockdown by her parents because there's a serial killer out there like maiming children. So they're very worried for her. Um, and so it's decided this magic the leper people decide that Sunny and her friends are are a coven. Like they're a very young coven and they are gonna be the ones who are gonna go after the serial killer uh, for reasons they get into in the book. So she's gotta go do that, like save the world and also like not miss her math test, you know, that kind of stuff. Um <laughs> and there are more and more books in the series. Uh it's just like fun. It's just a really fun read, which is a weird thing to say. I know every time I describe this book and say the word serial serial killer and then the words fun, people are like, What's wrong with you? But no it It is. It's super fun. And, um, you know, if you like that kind of magical Academy uh, story, the Rite of Raleigh. So that's Akata Witch by Nettie Okorafor.
1: All right. I picked Jade City by Fonda Lee. I have an accidental martial arts theme, it turns out. Um, (laughs) I'm not sorry about that, though. Um, This is kind of like the Godfather, but with fantasy superpowers and martial arts. And it does come With a content warning for there is a section towards the end of the book where there is um, mention of child abuse and child pornography. But it's like it's pretty off screen. And also it's it's very clearly like this dude is bad. Uh, So there. But otherwise, I don't think there's any other like, you know, discussion of any kind of sex or romance or interactions of that nature on the page. And it's so I I thought this was so much fun. It is based in a society where it turns out there's this magical form of the stone jade that is mined on a very specific island of Kekon, and there are these warriors who have who can harness the powers in the magical jade to enhance their you know speed, agility, strength, etc. Um, and they have used these powers to defend the island from you know foreign invasion. Colonization, etc. Um, I believe the island is loosely based on Taiwan, is my understanding. And so there are there are these two rival families who each have these jade powers. And they used to work together, but now they are at odds with each other. And a new drug that lets people who don't otherwise have this ability to harness these powers do that. But with terrible consequences, it hits the market and then everything blows up. And so, you know, there's wars in the streets. There's also internal dissension um, in the one family. I think it's the Call family. The, you know, heir apparent is like not really interested and some of them don't want to have anything to do with the quote unquote family business. And then some of them are trying to prove themselves. And it's just like action-packed. It's really smart. It moves fast. It's actually really long, too. It's like f- almost 500 pages long. Um, and the sequel, the Jade... Ooh, what is it called? Anyway, the sequel is out also. Jade War, that's what it is. Um, and Jade Legacy will come out next year. So there's more where that came from if he likes it. And yeah, just like really enjoyable, fun, fascinating world-building, and lots of everyday problems like accounting yeah. um, alongside of... You know, this like sort of mafia family warfare plus magic. So again, that's Jade City by Fonda Lee. And now it is time for our next sponsor.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888-LOVE and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my...
1: All right. So our next question is from Eileen, who says, In the last couple of years, I've stumbled on a peculiar plot set up in TV and movies that I really enjoy and would love to explore in book form. It's the, quote unquote, kids face, strife as children and escape, then grow up and reunite to destroy it once and for all. I'm thinking of TV shows like The Haunting of Hill House, books like It, it, Mm -hmm. and books like Meddling Kids. I really enjoyed all of these, especially Hill House, since it really explored the characters and their relationships. Uh, I read Hill House and enjoyed it, but it wasn't anything like the show and it gave me horrible nightmares and I couldn't finish. I'm hoping you'll know of more books that might scratch this particular itch. I'm open to books with a similar setup outside the horror genre. It's really more the reuniting friends slash siblings and facing trauma together that is the big draw for me. Amanda, I've been talking for a thousand years.
0: (laughs) So I picked something that is basically the opposite of Stephen King. <laughs> it's just the complete total just no opposite it's the peach keeper by sarah addison allen sarah addison allen writes small southern town magical realism heartwarming fiction which is you know so none of those things apply to stephen king i don't think uh, but in the peach keeper which takes place in a town called walls of water north carolina uh, the main character's name is willa and she is 30 years old she comes from a like very fine southern family you know that came upon hard times a few generations ago um and haven't you know hit their level of financial success that they had before since then um willa left town after high school and came back about eight years ago when her father died that her family used to own the blue ridge madam which is this huge home in town that uh willa's great 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 grandfather built that was like a you know the the building symbol of their success and has stood kind of empty for years. It's like a monument to her family's ruin. And she, Willa, spends a weird amount of time. Reminded me of the Dutch house a little bit. She spends like a weird amount of time parked outside of this house thinking about it, even though she like did not live. It's strange, Um, but, you know, rich people be like that. I don't know. And so she, (laughs) um, her, her, the house has been sold to another family, a socialite uh, named Paxton Osgood, who was a high school classmate of Willis, along with Paxton's twin brother, whose name I can't remember. I think it's Clint or something like that. Anyway. And so Paxton's family has bought the Blue Ridge Madam and they are renovating it and are going to reopen it as a really successful, like pretty fancy bed and breakfast, like an inn. Um, And in the process of reopening it, they take out the property's peach tree in order to plant an old, I think it's a magnolia that they're having brought in, like that's hundreds of years old that they're having brought in from another part of the state. And when they they dig up that peach tree, they find a body buried underneath it. And they find out, the police find out that it is the body of a traveling salesman named Tucker Devlin, who came through town 75 years ago, kind of like, entranced the ladies you know of the town and then went missing because somebody killed him and buried him under the peach tree and so willa and paxton paxton's brother whose name i can't remember and then another classmate of theirs um who was an outsider during high school and is kind of successful uh in his career now who paxton has like kind of a crush on the four of them come together to figure out how that body ended up there and what it has to do with their their families. Um, so it's more of the people from childhood coming together to face a trauma as opposed to like, you know, a literal demon. Although there is some magical there are some like magical elements in this because that's what Sarah Addison Elle, Allen is best known for. Um, so more small town, which actually Stephen King does do a bit of but in the South with all the stuff that comes along with that and a, a murder mystery. So it's a it's a really fast read and a very character driven. They all, all four of them go on these really interesting interesting journeys that center around this huge house that symbolizes a lot of different things to people in town. So that's The Peach Keeper by Sarah Addison Allen.
1: I think that Chosen Ones by Veronica Roth is exactly what you're looking for. It just came out. I just finished it the other night. And let me tell you, I have some capital F feelings about the (laughs) ending of this book, which as I was prepping for the show today, I realized it's got a number one after it on Goodreads. Like, it's like chosen ones, the chosen ones, number one. I was like, okay, well... That makes some sense then, because it actually could be a standalone, but again, capital F feelings. All right. So trigger warnings for self-harm, fatal overdose, torture, and gore. This is a dark, dark book, but I am a horror light person Mm. and I got through it and it did not give me nightmares. So I think you'll probably be okay. And it is exactly about this thing. There were these five teenagers who, you know, were identified by the government Through a prophecy that they actually took seriously and they recruited these teenagers as chosen ones and they defeated this, you know, villain who they call the Dark One. Also, P.S. Petition for like better villain names (laughs) going forward. Like, come on now. Come on. Um, But anyway, they defeat this villain and then now it's 10 years later and they are like, you know nearing 30 and full of PTSD and trying to have lives, like, one of them is this, like, it's the book version of Instagram star, and you know, she's a she's a major influencer and in fashion and makeup. And then another one is like, you know, become like a charity person and a motivational speaker. And but Sloane, who we get her POV through most of the book, is just barely holding it together. She's having nightmares. She like wakes up in the kitchen holding a knife kind of thing. She's just and everybody hates her because she's not likable. Like, she's not playing the game. She's not, she doesn't like to sign autographs. She doesn't want to be part of interviews. And What's really interesting about this book is that there are these interspersed documents, as it were, between the chapters. So some of them are government records with like redacted or whatever. And then some of them are like pieces of, you know, there's actually the text of a quote unquote interview with Sloane, and the guy who does the interview is like a classic creep. It actually reminded me a lot of that Margot Robbie piece that was Mm. so weird and gross. Like I think Veronica Roth had also read that when she wrote that section. Anyway, so she Sloane has this very poor public perception of her and also doesn't care, but also it makes her life very hard because she can't leave the house without getting recognized. So, like, life is complicated. And it's 10 years later. There's, like, a memorial ceremony, and they find out the government is actually looking more into magic. They still don't really understand how magic works. Nobody else can use it. It's very strange. It's not really a part of their lives anymore. And then everything goes to hell in a handbasket. And I like I'm confused about what I can and cannot say about this plot because I just feel like, well, anyway, things are not as they seem. I won't say it. I feel like it's like a thing I want to say, but it's not in the (gasps) copy. So I don't want to say it because I don't know if they consider it that big of a spoiler. And, you know, people sometimes get mad when we talk too much about the (laughs) details of the book. So I will restrain myself. But anyway, everything goes to hell in a handbasket. And they're finding out things about what happened in the past that they thought they knew, turn out not to be what they knew. And Sloane has this big secret she's keeping from everyone, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, there's lots of trauma. There's lots of, like, how are we going to come together in the face of this new thing? There's lots of what choices do we make? What choices did we make in the past? Were they the right choices? Et cetera, et cetera. And like I said, big capital F feelings about the ending. So, again, that's Chosen Ones by Veronica Roth. If somebody else has read this, like, please tweet at me because I need to talk about this (laughs) with someone.
0: All right. Question six is from Brittany, who says, I was recently diagnosed with cancer and had to have surgery to remove the tumors. I would love some recommendations on characters dealing with a diagnosis of cancer. It can be fiction or nonfiction. Okay, well, I'm sorry to hear that. I hope you're doing better. I picked a bananas book. It's bananas. It's called The Bus on Thursday. It's by Shirley Barrett. And when I first saw this book, it was blurbed as Bridget Jones meets The Exorcist. What? What? Yes, <laughs> correct. Yes. So it's it's Australian and what? it is a horror novel, I think. I Kind of. A little bit. It's a little bit of horror. It's just weird. It's so weird and hilarious and I want you to read it and tell me what you think. So it's about a woman named Eleanor. She's a teacher. She is a hilarious. She's very Bridget Jonesy. Like, she's snarky and like, a little image-obsessed, not necessarily likable, except you like her anyway, that kind of thing. She gets diagnosed with an aggressive version of breast cancer. And her life, of course, becomes upended. She has to have a mastectomy, which makes her feel, like, weird things about her body. Her boyfriend breaks up with her. She loses her job because she has to go through all of these treatments. Um, And so, like, she's dealing with a doctor she's got a crush on, and that feels weird to her because she doesn't have breasts anymore. And, like, there's cupcakes and support groups, and why? Like, why Does she have to deal with all these things? And then she discovers that a little town that's really remote called Telbingo is hiring a primary school teacher. So she decides that's where she's going to go. Like she's going to leave all this craziness behind. She's feeling better. She's going to go to Telbingo and become their primary school teacher. When she gets there, it's weird. It's a weird place because their former primary school teacher, Miss Barker, vanished one night and was apparently like this perfect teacher, perfect cardigan wearing, made you cookies, like cared about everyone kind of teacher, which is not who Eleanor is. Eleanor is if Bridget Jones taught elementary school um and so she's got to, like dealing with that um and then also there's like a friar who lives there who keeps telling Eleanor that she brought the cancer on herself because she has like demons inside of her and all this kind of weird stuff and she can't decide if like he's mean or unstable or both and there's that the whole thing and she's also living alone in this like remote cabin that doesn't have cell service doesn't have internet service why are there so many locks on the door no one else lives here that's kind of weird who's knocking on my door late at night like what is going on here what is this place and when i was reading through the reviews of this on Goodreads, somebody described eleanor as uh, a few sandwiches short of a picnic which i thought was just the best And I'm totally going to steal that. But that's the central mystery of the book is, is Eleanor a few sandwiches short of a picnic and like imagining all of these things that happen once she gets to this tiny town? Or is this tiny town like haunted or possessed by demons? Everyone who lives there in like a weird Children of the Cornway. It's just bonkers. So like her cancer is the thing that gets her to this, to the actual story, which is what is going on in Talbingo, which is what the book should have actually been called. Anyway, so that's The Bus on (laughs) Thursday by Shirley Barrett. Wow. Yes! Bananas!
1: (laughs) Yeah. I went in a very different direction. (laughs) I have a memoir for you. It's called All the Wild Hungers by Karen Babine. And this is not from the voice of a person who's dealing with cancer. Her mother is diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. And when she's—they're all adults— And she is a cook. Karen uh, loves to cook for people. She like collects, you know, old cast irons from thrift stores and rescues them and has a whole wall and they have names and everything. Um, And so like feeding people is how she shows love. But her mother is going through chemotherapy and therefore is like really struggling with eating. And so she dives into, you know, all of this research about like what's good for people who are going through this and like what can she make and what does her mother actually want to eat? And, you know, she's a vegetarian, but there's a lot of like, you know, bone broth or pot roast is what her mom's craving. And so she's, you know, dealing with all of these pressures and feelings about, you know, her mother's diagnosis and what her mom's going through and, you know, trying to keep the family together. And she's got this big, extended, lovely family who are all, you know, dealing with different things. And it's just a really beautifully written, lovely, lovely memoir of like what family looks like in times of crisis and what are the things that you think about that you've never thought about before. And, you know, how do you care for your loved ones when your love language is food and they're not able to eat the food that you make? And it's, it's just really interesting. She also, you know, talks a lot about, you know, the research that she does or the things that she's learning and, you know, also the way that people treat her mom and, you know, the way the medical system works and patient advocacy and all of these different things. But the real heart of it is this notion of like bringing the family together at the table and what it looks like when that is no longer available in the same way. Um, And I just thought it was, I thought it was really lovely. It's actually pretty short. It's like under 200 pages. And it's just, yeah, it's really beautiful, thoughtful, lovely book. And again, that's All the Wild Hungers by Karen Babine. And our next question is from Maria, who says, I'm a big fiction reader, but I've been wanting to get into poetry recently. I will read basically anything. And lately, I've been reading romance, fantasy, and memoirs. I'm a Hispanic 19-year-old female, if that helps. I would love something a bit modern, contemporary, and non-traditional. A book of poems would be ideal. Amanda, what did you pick?
0: I picked Don't Call Us Dead by Dennis Smith, which is amazing. I went back and forth on recommending this or not, because it uh, was a finalist for the National Book Award for Poetry. And when somebody asks for something like non-traditional, a like giant award winner, like the National (laughs) Book Award is maybe not what you're looking for. But I think it's still, I think it is non-traditional because, you know, like all big prizes, the NBA has a history of picking really the same poetry books written by the same like white dudes over and over and over. So anyway, Denise Smith is, I just, heart. All of the poems are as if a heart has been like ripped out of a person and presented to you on a platter, but like with really nice language and not in a gross way, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Um, so all of the poems are about love and longevity. Denez is HIV positive. So some of the poems are about that and about living as a black man in America. There is, uh, the is Don't Call Us Dead Opens with this like poem about what an afterlife for black men who have been murdered by police officers would look like and like how there's no grief or violence, how they don't how they can like walk the streets without suspicion. And it's just heartbreaking. And Dear White America is another poem from this collection. And I think everybody should be forced to read. As with most poetry collections, it's not like super long. It's like 100 pages. And Grey Wolf is the publisher and Grey Wolf puts out amazing books, both poetry and prose. Everything Grey Wolf puts out is great. It's hard to like, summarize a poetry collection or to summarize poems, right? Because often they don't have like there's no plot they don't have uh, things that you can you can soundbite to give to a person. But I will say that since you're young and looking for something perhaps nonconforming. And I think these poems are closer to what younger people in my life that I've seen are reading when it comes to poetry than not. So more um, like spoken word kind of poems and like Instagram style, you know, that kind of thing. They're not super long they're not really outdated language the metaphors aren't tortured like you understand what Dines is trying to say to you which is not to say that with other poetry you don't or with like more traditional poetry you don't but there is a barrier there for a reason you know so anyway i love this collection so much it's don't call us dead by dines smith
1: i picked bright dead things by ada limón who is actually a latina poet her grandparents are from mexico and i so listen I struggle with poetry and I think I finally figured out what the real struggle is as I was researching this question and I think it's because I'm always trying to read it like I think it should be read but this time I just let myself read it like I wanted to which is like a novel like Mm. you just read one page after the other and keep going. I always feel like I'm like supposed to like read one page at a time and sit there and think about it and like absorb the imagery and like think about what it means. And I just, I can't do it. It just doesn't work for me. So I read this the way that I wanted to, and I loved it. (laughs) Mm. Also, weirdly, the first poem in this book is following me around because no lie, I had dinner with a friend in early February and we were walking her back to her Airbnb and we like literally stopped on the side of the street so she could read me this poem. And like, lo and behold, it is the first poem in this book, which I had had, had no idea that that was going to happen or was true. So that was just fascinating and kind of cool, like a weird, interesting I don't know, like, serendipitous moment. And this collection, I don't know, I don't know, you know, I don't read a lot of poetry, so, like, non-traditional, I don't know if you meant experimental. This is not experimental, but it is modern and contemporary. And she's writing about just all kinds of things. She's writing about what it's like to have your life split into like urban and rural because she moves from New York City to rural Kentucky with her partner. And like, what is that like? And who are you when you do that? Um, She lost a parent. And so she's dealing with grief. She writes about love. She writes about, you know, who, the natural world, she writes about her internal conflict. She writes about the people around her. She's just like writing about, you know, all of the things. And she's got an amazing way with words. I love the images of these poems. And I love how the structure is mixed up. Like some of them are that kind of structure where there's no line breaks. It's all just like a paragraph, but it's still clearly a poem. And then some of them do have line breaks that take you through the flow in different ways. And I like that too. I like seeing different kinds of structures present because it gives me opportunities to, you know, feel out how I want to read them. Um, And it's like very feminist and, you know, again, very contemporary sensibility wise. And I just think it's I think it's great. Um, She's been recommended to me so many times by various uh, book writers, including uh, Vanessa Diaz. So um, I'm glad to finally be on the Ada Limon train. (laughs) So again, that's Bright Dead Things by Ada Limon.
0: And that's our show. Hooray. Yay. Thank you all so much for listening. Please go leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors for sponsoring the show. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson.
1: I am also on Instagram at I am Jen IRL and Jen is spelled with two N's. And you can also find me on Twitter as Jen IRL J E N N I R L.
0: And we will talk to you all next week.